Hello and welcome back to Music Works, a podcast from Polyphony Arts. In this episode, we welcome Daniel Lewis, the Classical Relationships Manager at PRS for Music. Alongside his important work at PRS, Daniel is also a flautist and a composer himself, meaning he has a unique and detailed understanding of the classical music world. If you're a performer, composer, promoter or publisher, we invite you to stay tuned to learn more about what PRS for Music is, how it works, why it's important for you to have a relationship with PRS and top tips to not miss out on royalties. We will discuss important questions like what is the difference between performing and mechanical royalties? How do composers get paid for their work through PRS and how does it differ from being commissioned? And why do music industry topics including the importance of new music to the classical sector? But first, here's an advert from our sponsor. Music Works is sponsored by the Musicians' Union. I'm a member of the Musicians' Union. It's the trade union for musicians living and or working in the UK. And it's a community of 32,000 members working to protect musicians' rights and campaigning for a fairer industry. As well as campaigning to fix streaming and keep musicians working in the EU post-Brexit, the union collectively bargains for musicians working in orchestras and theatres and sets minimum recommended rates for freelance musicians working in other sectors. Its expert staff provide contract advice, legal advice and assistance and a range of benefits and services to help musicians in every aspect of their work. Be part of something bigger and get the recognition you deserve. Join now at the MU.org. So now let's head over to the Music Works studio where Daniel is waiting. Hi Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Hiya, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So um, I'm excited to talk to you today about all things PRS for Music. So let's start with a bit about you. Can you tell us about your background and what you do for PRS for Music? Sure. Well, my background is in contemporary classical music um, and also working with composers. So in the past, I've um, worked in publishing. Um, I was the new music editor at Edition Peters, and there I got to work with some fantastic contemporary composers on their commissions. And I'm also a flute player and a composer myself, so big fan of contemporary music. Um, but in my current role at PRS, um, my title is Classical Relationship Manager. And again, that involves working with composers and also publishers and ensuring that the needs of the classical sector are represented within the wider world of PRS. Brilliant. And um, so, let's, so you've mentioned the wider world of PRS. Let's uh, let's hear about that then. So obviously, um, PRS for music is something that impacts an awful lot of musicians and composers. Um, can you just tell us a bit about about what they do for those that don't know or aren't clear? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so PRS stands for Performing Rights Society, and we represent the rights of around one hundred and sixty thousand music creators and a significant portion of those are classical composers. And we're a membership organization. And when people join PRS, those people are composers and music publishers. They assign their rights to us and we then administer them on their behalf. And we do this um, by issuing licenses to people that use music, that use music compositions. So that might be when something is performed live. It could be when it's broadcast. Um, it could also be when it's streamed. So all of these platforms out there, um, we go and we license them. Um, so PRS is responsible for ensuring that 
that composers and songwriters are fairly paid whenever their music is used. Um, and in classical music, um, it's worth mentioning that this is just for copyright music. Uh, so it'll be for living composers and also the estates of prominent 20th century composers that are still in copyright. So that makes working at PRS really exciting as well, because we're always working with new music. Absolutely, and um, perfect for your experience as well. That's great. Um, great, and so your job title being um, Relationship Manager for Classical Music. So tell us about um, how important it is for composers to have a relationship with PRS. Yeah, exactly. I think it's really, really important. Um, so. As I mentioned, composers assign their rights to PRS, um, and it's only correct that they have um, the ability to ask us questions about how we actually license their music, and also put questions to us. Um, and that question could be something as simple as, when can I expect payment for a performance? Um, so I think it's really important that um, composers have a relationship with PRS. Um, and I thought it'd be interesting to mention that among the founders of PRS were a Mr. Boozy and a Mr. Hawkes. Um, so classical music is something that runs to the very roots of PRS. And um, I came across quite recently some letters from, from Ralph Vaughan Williams to PRS, where um, he was quite vocal um, about certain instances. So for example, I think it was someone arranged his music um, and he was quite keen to work out how PRS would manage that. Um, so in a sense, nothing changes. Um, but of course, nowadays, um, you know, the technology and the advances in, in the ways people consume music have really changed. Um, mm. But the fundamental concept um, that we're licensing the rights of music creators and ensuring that they get paid is the same. And yeah, it's good for the composers to have input into, into how that happens, like Paul Williams did. <laughs> <laughs> Like Paul Williams before us. That's great. Okay, we're going to come to some more specific examples of the kind of things that you help composers with later in this episode. But um, for now, I just wanted to ask um, about royalties, always a, a kind of um, tricky to understand topic, I'm sure you agree. Um, so how are PRS royalties different from other ways that composers can make money, like commissioning um, a composer to write music or hiring music from a publisher. Can you sort of say how PRS fits into this, that whole picture? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And um, yeah, it's useful sometimes to maybe clarify everything that's happening when it comes to performing a piece of classical music, and particularly contemporary classical music. So I suppose starting with the commission fee, that's when an ensemble or a festival, any kind of commissioner, might ask a composer to write a piece of music. And that fee is really um, a fee for remunerating the, the time and the labour that goes into writing the composition itself. Um, compositions, especially for large forces and acoustic instruments, they take quite a lot of time to write. Um, composers need to make sure that they're idiomatic for the instruments that uh, they're writing for and also express themselves in the way they would like. Um, so the commission fee is very much uh, remuneration for their for their labour in writing the piece. And then you have a music composition at the end of it. And that composition has various rights that are granted to it, um, well, to the creators under UK law, and that's through the Copyright Designs and Patents Act. And the two main types of copyright that we need to be concerned with in classical music, at least, is that of the music composition, 
and then that of the typographical arrangement, which um, we might refer to as the score. Um, and so when it comes to PRS, composers assign rights related to the music composition to us. Um, and the most important one here is the right to communicate that composition to the public. So that's where PRS comes into play is when you're actually performing and communicating compositions to the public and composers assign those rights to PRS. And then where the sheet music comes in is that right hasn't been assigned to PRS. So it stays with the rights holders, which would be the composer or the publisher if they're published. So looking at the overall picture, you pay a commission fee to the composer directly for their labor. Then you may also hire or purchase the sheet music from them or their publisher. And then the venue um, would get a license from PRS. So I think it's important to make that distinction is that it's the responsibility of the venue or the promoter of the concept uh, to get that license from PRS to communicate that composition to the public, because ultimately they are the ones that are doing that. Um, mm -hmm. So hopefully that helps clarify how things work. Um, but I'm always really happy to talk to people, whether it's composers or people in the sector about, you know, how all of this fits together and, you know, if people need to do anything um, in order to ensure that all the necessary permissions are in place. Mm, that's really clear. Thank you so much. Um, and so that explains how um, we as consumers of music pay for our music. How does it look from a composer's perspective? Yeah, so in the first instance, PRS needs to make sure that licenses are in place with all the various music users. So in classical music, that might look like a, a concert venue. It could be a, a broadcaster such as BBC Radio 3. Um, it could be a streaming platform or there could be international performances as well. How I like to describe PRS uh, to people sometimes is imagine your favorite composer or someone you're listening to at the moment and then imagine all the different places in which you might hear their music or all the various platforms and if composers had to individually license all of those different uses they would soon run out of time and not be able to write their music so that's what prs exists for um, so in our first instance we need to ensure that all of those licenses are in place the next step in the process is getting all of the information into the building, that data about how music is used. And interestingly, um, in 2021, PRS uh, processed 27 trillion usages of music, which is a completely incomprehensible number to me, uh, wow. but it just goes to show how ubiquitous music is. Mm. And also credit to my, to my colleagues who are responsible for overseeing those processes. Um, yeah, it's, it sounds quite complicated. Luckily, it's something that I don't need to get into the nuts and bolts of in my role. It's more kind of making sure that uh, we're looking after composers properly. Um, but I thought it'd be useful to drop that number in that 27 trillion uses of music. It's absolutely huge. That is literally incomprehensible <laughs> number, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Um, wow. Yeah, but it goes to show how, how you know, ubiquitous music is, but also mm. Um, you know, how popular uh, the music of PRS members is um, and yes. UK music. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, when we have that data, um, we then need to match it to compositions in our database, which is why it's so incredibly important for, for composers to, to register works. 
Mm. Um, and once we've done that, uh, there's a value that needs to be assigned to it, of course. And that value will depend on a number of PRS kind of tariffs or specific um, terms and conditions of the licensing agreements that we have in place with individual providers. So to give you a couple of examples that relate to classical music, the tariff for uh, classical concerts, um, there are a couple of ways um, you can calculate it. But the most common is a sort of flat rate, which is a percentage of the gross admission receipts. And that's currently at 4.2%. And what happens as a concert, 4.2% of that gross admission receipt revenue is allocated almost to a royalty pool and that's divided up um, among the copyright works in the program according to the duration of the work, so how much of the work was performed. Mm -hmm. Another example might be in, in the case of, of radio. A per minute rate is assigned to each station, and that's based on the audience size that we estimate. And there are also kind of time bands, as they might be for trains. Um, there'd be a high peak, a non-peak, and a, and a low peak. And mm. to give you a sort of example, um, BBC Radio 3 at a high peak time is approximately £14.50 a minute. Um, and so once we have all that data, match it to compositions, there's a value attached to it. And then um, we pay out the royalty um, in quarterly distributions. So in April, July, October and December. And if you're an avid Twitter user, um, you might have seen the hashtag PRS Day. And that's when uh, members share various stories of, of information that they've seen on their statements. Sometimes it's nice to see that music is being used in, in a context or in a country that you have no idea about. So it's really nice mm. to see those stories. Yeah, it's, a, it, it's something I come across as well a lot, the, uh, the sort of surprise of a PRS statement. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's great that there's a hashtag for sharing that. Yeah. So they get paid quarterly and um, yeah, that's really clear. That's great. Just an immediate question popped into my head then. What happens if um, there's no charge for admission then? If people run free concerts or donation concerts or... Yeah, there is a, yeah. There is a break for that. Um, oh, right, yeah. So the, yeah, the full details yeah. of the scheme are published on our website. Yeah. Um, so in, this might, might not be a good time to mention the sort of public facing entity of PRS. Um, mm -hmm. So in 2018, we established a joint venture with our friends PPL. Now PPL is essentially um, an equivalent of PRS, but for sound recordings. And previously, businesses had to obtain a PRS license and a PPL license, um, which you can imagine might cause some confusion. Um, but we established a joint venture in 2018, which enables us to do that together. Um, so go on to pplprs.com and you can actually view the, the entire classical tariff as it is at the moment. But there is a rate for um, non-admission fee concepts. Great, good to know. Thank you. Great, so I'd now like to move on to a set of questions that, um, that we've talked about in advance that are the, the frequently asked questions yeah. that you get from your... Uh, composers I guess that you that you have the relationships with so um, question one is a PRS license only required for live performances yeah that's a, a good question because um, even though PRS stands for performing rights society performed in this context 
actually means communicated to the public. Yeah. So whenever a composition is communicated to the public, that requires a PRS license. There are also um, examples where an additional element of the license is needed. For example, when something is broadcast or streamed, that also requires an MCPS license. Um, and that's something that we haven't covered yet, but it relates to mechanical royalties. Yeah, and what, so, okay, what is the difference between performing and mechanical royalties then? Yeah, this is another one that's, that's good to <laughs> clear up sometimes. Um, yeah. So, Prieris for music is the brand name. And within that brand name are two different royalty collection societies. There's PRS itself, which is the Performing Rights Society. Um, and as I just mentioned, I would think of performed as communicated to the public in this context. Yeah. And then there's another society called uh, MCPS, which is the Mechanical Copyright Protection Society. So um, an MCPS license is required whenever music is copied onto a CD or onto a vinyl. It also comes into play when music is technically copied when it's first dubbed onto radio or when a digital copy is made when someone streams. Mm. Um, so those are differences. But I mean, from the perspective of, of someone who's using music, um, there isn't you know, a, a great importance on knowing the difference between the two because you'll deal with PRS for music, this brand name that administers them both. Right. But from the perspective of a composer, it's really important to know because they're two different organizations which require two different memberships. There's a £100 fee to join PRS, and there's also a £100 fee to join MCPS. So if someone's at that stage where they're starting to have recordings of their music and they're released on physical products, it might be worth starting to consider joining MCPS as well. Mm, yeah, that's really useful as well, the distinction between how this appears to a composer and how it appears to a, a user of music. Thank you. Great. Um, and so let's talk about live streaming, having mentioned, bit, you know, music you can hear and music can hold. There's a sort of middle ground here. <laughs> um, how does um, how does this work? Can you demystify live streaming for us in this context? Yeah, definitely. Um, funnily enough, I was at a conference recently and there was a session on live streaming and the opportunities that it could afford the classical sector, which is a really interesting topic in and of itself. Mm. And towards the end of the conversation, there was an open question about what are the challenges when it comes to live streaming the concept. And overwhelmingly, one of the questions was rights. And I thought it was it, it would be such a shame if people felt like they weren't able to explore this for for confusion around the rights or for fear about approaching the topic. So ever since I've, I've really wanted to, to talk about this and whenever I do meet people, uh, try and clarify um, the situation. Uh, to give you a short answer, um, there are two different licenses required. Um, one is through PRS and you can purchase this on our website. And then there's another element um, which concerns sync um, and permission for this is required from the composer or the publisher if they're published. Just so, so to cover that um, PRS uh, part, first of all, if you imagine what we just discussed with music being performed or communicated to the public, but also copied at the same time, you're doing both of those things and you require permission for both those elements. 
but you can get that from PRS for Music. And we have a, a web store on our website. And the license you'd need is called an online live concerts license. So I would search for that, um, find it on the PRS website, and you can actually check out online. You can add it to your basket and, and basically purchase that license online by providing us some information about the concert. Just to give you an idea of the cost of that, um, for concerts that um, generate ticket revenue that's less than £1,500, um, that's charged at a flat rate, which is between £25 and £125 at the top of the scale, which I think is, which is a decent price, I think, considering that that revenue is going to be split up um, between all of the copyright works in the programme. Um, but if there's a concept where the ticket revenue exceeds £1,500, then that's done as a percentage of um, gross ticket receipts, um, as it is for a live performance anyway. Mm. Um, so that's the one aspect of, of live streaming the concert, is get that online live concert license from PRS. But there's an additional um, element here, which I hope is the, the last right that we need to discuss today. I think we would have <laughs> covered everything up until this point, and that's um, SYNC. So SYNC stands for synchronization right, and that comes into play whenever music is used in conjunction with moving images. So when you create a video recording of a performance. And that synchronization right is not something that is assigned to PRS when members join. So they still have that. So you need to get in touch with the composer or the publisher, let them know you want to live stream a concert. Um, and there may be a fee involved with that um, in order for you to make that video. Um, but I think it's a, it's a nice thing to do anyway, just to get in touch with the composer or the publisher to say that you want to do this. So it can kind of be part of that conversation. Absolutely. It's, a, it's always bewildering to me, I work with a lot of composers, how many of them struggle to find out when their works are being performed it is so it means such a lot um no matter the career stage or anything like that to know that your work is being performed um when you were saying so that was really clear again thank you when you say you in this context you're talking about like the promoter of the event um the person yeah, putting so on the online concert yeah or the exactly, live stream. Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah so it would, it would either be the venue or the promoter um yeah so you being the the licensee in that context yeah. mm. Sure. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, great. Well, as you say, I think we've covered all rights now. Let's move on to <laughs> other types of questions. Now, this is one that um, you demystified for me just a few weeks ago. Um, what exactly is the relationship between PRS for Music and the PRS Foundation, which obviously are both organisations that people will have heard of? Yeah, for sure. And, and sometimes in, in the classical world, the PRS Foundation is, is one that people may uh, be in touch with before PRS for music, yeah. um, depending depending on the level of um, you know the stage you're at in your composing career. Um, so to do PRS for music first, PRS for music uh, solely exists um, to collect and distribute royalties on behalf of members. So we're a royalty collection organisation. Uh, the PRS Foundation is essentially um, PRS's um, kind of talent development um, arm, if you like. It's a, it's a charity um, that's funded uh, primarily by PRS for Music. Um, and to do that, we make a, a yearly donation. Um, and then 
that goes to talent development. So you would have heard of their programs such as the Open Fund, Women Make Music, Power Up, and that's all done by PRS Foundation. So their um, main purpose is on talent development, and then PRS for Music is more on the collection and distribution of royalties. Thank you so much for telling us about that. Um, so are there any other frequently asked questions that you get from composers or performers? Sure. I mean, that one uh, difference between PRS and PRS Foundation is probably um, the, the number one. Um, I guess another frequently asked question, um, which comes up quite a lot, is around arrangements. And a composer might ask, I've, I've arranged this folk song or I've arranged this um, Maybe I've arranged a Beethoven quartet or reworked um, Vivaldi's Four Seasons, for example. And there's a question about the copyright in that. Is that something that you could register with PRS? Um, and the answer is yes, absolutely, for public domain repertoire. Um, so if a composer arranges that public domain work, they have a right to, to claim 100% um, of the royalties, if they're self-published, of course. Uh, yeah. if they're, they're published, there'll be a publishing agreement in place and the royalties splits depend on that. Um, but I think that's um, important to, to kind of increase the awareness on that. And there are some performers that are really prolific in making arrangements and reworks. And, you know, to some of those uh, performers, um, it might actually be worth considering joining PRS because if you perform your arrangements live and they are of public domain repertoire, then there's royalties there that you might be able to collect. Um, I'll just make a distinction with arranging copyright works. Um, so I think it's important just to say that if you do arrange something that is in copyright, then you require permission from the rights holders in order to do that. And then there might be a, a question or a conversation later down the line as to whether you know you might be entitled to share of the royalties in that instance. Um, and just to recap, the term of copyright in music is for the lifetime of the creator plus 70 years after the year um, in which they die. Mm. That's very useful, thank you. And I, I didn't know that about arrangements, that's very interesting. <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah. It, yeah, it is interesting. And yeah, sometimes composers, um, well, I guess those kinds of reworks and arrangements of um, classic repertoire um, it's happening quite a lot at the moment. I see a lot of those mm. albums being made. And yeah, um, yeah it's worth knowing about. Um, yeah, another frequently asked question um, also might be, where are my royalties? Yes. Um, so, you know, how how is this being licensed? Um, can I expect royalties for it? And also, you know, I've had this performance and I haven't been paid yet. Um, and on that, I really just want to say to, to people, um, anyone who works with composers who, or who is a composer who's a member of PRS, um, I'm absolutely happy to talk to anybody um, and really help you with this. You can also get in touch with our member services team, but I think it's nice to, to be able to talk to someone who actually understands you know, the process that went into writing the piece and, and the performance of it. So I'm always really happy to chat to composers and you can reach out to me via my PRS email or on social media. Feel free to drop me a DM if you're expecting payment for a performance and it hasn't in them. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate I might be inviting. Yeah, very open. <laughs> yeah, but no, no, great. Thank you. No, That's my job. Absolutely. 
<laughs> and um, so that's great. And do you have any top tips? Um, the arrangement one was brilliant. Do you have any more top tips for composers to ensure they don't miss out on royalties? Yeah, sure. So I think number one thing is always to register your works um, and ideally do that in advance of any performances. Um, as I mentioned, all this data that comes into PRS needs to be matched to compositions. And if that composition isn't there, then it might cause a delay in the royalty payment. Um, although it, it's also useful to know that we do have a mechanism in place um, for when that is the case. So we're unable to, to match um, some data to an existing composition. Um, and I think everyone at PRS understands that composers are incredibly busy people. And especially in that late stage of a commission, when you're finishing, finishing it off and then you might go straight into rehearsals and there's a period of rehearsals, that kind of admin work can perhaps go on the back burner when they're more pressive, creative concerns. So we understand that, um, you know, a registration might not always be possible in advance of a performance. Um, so we have almost think of it as a backstop. Um, we have this system which is called um, an unnotified work. And what PRS might do is where we receive information about a performance um, and we know who wrote it, but we can't quite match it to an existing composition. We create um, a sort of nominal registration, which is called an unnotified work. And that's basically PRS saying, hello, we think um, you've had this work performed. Um, and what composers can do is log into the PRS website, prsmusic.com, and do their works. And there's a tab there for this thing called an unnotified work. And you can click on it and register it, and then you'll be able to receive royalties for that performance. So I think it's useful to know about that kind of process um, and, and go onto the PRS website every once in a while to register your works and check for those unnotified works as well. And um, my final top tip would be to report live performances. Um, so in PRS, there are two main types of venues when it comes to um, performances. There are concert venues, and these are venues that exist solely for the purpose of putting on live music events, for example, the Barb Center. Um, but on the other side, there are venues which we might call non-concert venues. And these are venues where music isn't the sole purpose for that business. So an example might be a pub that also has concerts or gigs. And in those instances, um, those venues don't have um, teams of staff that are able to, to keep track of what was performed and send that information to PRS. But rather than sort of miss out on royalties in those sorts of instances, uh, we decided to build this tool on our website, which is called Report Live Performances. And composers can use that whenever they have music performed in those kinds of venues. Um, so, you know, yeah, my third top tip is to is to go and check that out because um, you can report those sorts of performances to us and then we'll we'll investigate um, that performance and pay out the royalties. Fabulous, thank you. That's great. So there's various ways in which the money can make it to the composers via the venue reporting, via the composers themselves um, reporting. That's great, thank you so much. Um, so now let's have a bit of a chat about PRS for music in the wider sector. Tell us about PRS in, in um, the classical sector and, and its, its role, particularly thinking of new music in the classical sector. Yeah, sure. So 
PRS's primary function, if you like, is to collect and distribute royalties to our members. But we also want our members to thrive and to continue to create good music. And so we engage in a program of, of events, of sponsorships, and also partnerships um, to, to platform the work of our fantastic composers um, and to try and help them grow and to thrive. Um, to give you an example of a sponsorship we may be involved with, um, we are a title sponsor of the IVAS Composer Awards alongside BBC Radio 3. And I think it's, it's really great to be a part of that because um, unlike other awards, there are specific categories for, for example, small scale chamber, right up to large scale composition, to works for the stage, uh, sound art and jazz composition. And I think it's really important to recognize composing for those different forces in their own right, because it's a completely different skill involved. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm always really excited when the nominees are announced for the Ivers Composer Awards, and I'm always completely blown away by the music. It's phenomenal. It's a phenomenal award ceremony. This podcast actually went there um, at the last the last award ceremony, and it just the it was amazing all round. But the thing that really struck me was just so many people walking around and going, "It's just so nice to be recognised." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Such an overwhelming feeling of that at that event. Yeah, exactly. And you know, with it being primarily focused on on contemporary music as well, it's something that you know I'm really really happy to that PRS is sort of supporting that. Um, and, and yeah, I think the, the nominees for the IVAS Composer Awards are open at the moment. So um, the submissions for nomination close around 8th of July. So if those, this goes up uh, before the 8th of July, then I encourage people to, to go and check it out in the fly. Um, there's more the barrier in terms of applications. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's an example of something we do in the, in the sector in terms of a sponsorship. Um, we also put on events for members. So one thing we've started to do is, is PRS Members Day, where anyone who's a PRS member is invited. And we have kind of day-long sessions, which you know are comprised of sessions on questions in the music industry. So for example, we did a Members Day in London recently. Um, there was a session on the BBC and also one on NFTs, which is something that comes up quite a lot um, among certain sections of our members. Mm. Um, and we also have a kind of trade fair aspect to that, where partners from around the industry, people like the Ivers Academy, who we just mentioned, the MU, ISM, UK Music, um, they all come. So it's really nice for, um, for them to be there and members can go and chat to them and, and kind of hear about their work. And mm. at these members days as well, um, we also do PRS clinics. So you can book some time with a member of the PRS member services team and actually go and chat face to face with someone. And I think especially when we're talking about royalties, um, it's just easier sometimes to do it face to face. Um, you know, when you're trying to explain something over email, um, it can take such a long time. And to have that time with someone who works at PRS is something that's quite valuable, I think. So we did a, a Members' Day in Cardiff, um, one in London, and we'll be going to Manchester and Belfast soon. So if anybody's based up there, please do come down and say hello. Um, so yeah, that's that's a sort of event that we do. Um, and then thinking about classical music as well, um, we also engage in, in partnerships with organisations around the sector, which might include ensembles or festivals. And this is all about 
creating performance and commission opportunities for emerging composers in particular. One thing that we, we understand is that, of course, it's incredibly valuable for PRS to be there collecting royalties and distributing royalties. Also, what might make a difference to that in terms of the development of composers is having those kinds of commission and performance opportunities in the first place. Um, so there's a project that I'm working on that maybe we can talk about a little later on, but that's a good example of a partnership that we might create. Great, yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's, um, it's been really fantastic to hear about the the way in which PRS for Music looks at the the what composers need as a whole, as well as the um, as well as the the royalties aspect. Um, and yes, we can talk about that project later. Uh, just to ask as well. Um, how important do you feel new music is within the classical sector? Yeah, I think it's it's incredibly important. Um, and new music for me presents an opportunity to represent a lot of the positive change that we want to see in the sector. So whether that's attracting new audiences to concert halls and, and classical concerts across the country, or whether it's diversifying the repertoire in our concert halls. And whenever I speak to a composer, um, about a royalty claim or an issue they have with PRS. I always try and make an effort to, to go to a concert or to listen to their music. Um, and when I do that, I'm always quite um, taken aback um, and quite astounded, really, by all the incredible music that's been written. And it makes me really optimistic for the future of classical music. Um, but like I say, we, we still need to ensure that we support this wider ecosystem uh, that allows these composers to thrive um, and that's something that I'm quite keen to do in, in this role at PRS. Yeah absolutely and um, how I'm interested as well to learn more about how royalties were affected by the pandemic and if you've seen a recovery from that. Yeah definitely so as, as we're all really familiar with um, the pandemic touched every corner of the music industry um, and we saw that being reflected in the royalties we paid out to members. So in 2020, which was the year we had the most stringent um, lockdowns, um, there was a 80% reduction in royalties for live performances, which is a really um, you know, big drop and the largest drop we saw across the different areas um, of income that PRS collects. And in 2021, um, those royalties continued to be adversely hit, um, so there was a further drop, um, and that was around an 85% drop on pre-pandemic levels, um, which was 2019. And part of the reason for that further drop is that there's a natural time lag between the time of performance and the time at which we we see um, the royalties being paid out. Um, so you know that that's basically how the pandemic affected royalties. And one thing that I'm always keen to talk about when we're on this topic is thinking about classical composers in particular. And when they're commissioned, um, it's always to be performed live. And I feel like live performance is more important to the classical sector than say, for example, um, composers that may write work for the screen or you know, composers that regularly record albums and, and release them. So yeah. live represents a huge part of what we do. And so, you know, at PRS, we understand that that really means a lot to composers. Um, and one thing the team did in 2020, which I thought was great, was they they managed to kind of spend a huge amount of manual work on ensuring that past events were paid. 
and they were able to to keep royalties kind of flowing throughout those lockdown measures. Um, and I, in 2020, PRS actually paid out more revenue than it collected, um, which is all about processing um, past events, basically. Mm, yeah. um, so, you know, it, it, there was a big push to actually distribute money as much as possible during the pandemic. And it's something that we're going to continue to be doing. Thank you. Um, so uh, I think We've covered all of our topics on the wider sector as well for now, um, apart from wanting to hear about the project that you mentioned, um, your example of how you work with the wider sector. Sure, yeah, I just thought it would be, be interesting to mention this. Um, so, like I said, PRS engage, engages in partnerships uh, to support emerging composers with commission and performance opportunities. Um, but this year is also Philip Glass's 85th birthday year. And so um, we were discussing ways in which we might celebrate this with Dunvegan Music Publishers, who are Philip's publisher, and also Orange Mountain Music, who are his record label. And in recognition of all of his wonderful music, um, but also, you know, the, the fact that he still continues to inspire new generations of composers, and sometimes composers who, who may not kind of traditionally come through the classical education system. You know, he might inspire composers from other realms as well. So what we thought we'd do is commission four composers uh, to create an electronic composition based on some of Philip's original material. Um, and so we'll be announcing the composers that will take part for this soon. We did an open call at the start of the year, um, and that resulted in four composers being selected, and they're going to have this commission. And towards the end of the year, we'll be releasing an EP. Um, so definitely keep your eye out for that. Um, yeah. I'm sure there's some great music um, about to be created. How exciting, thank you. Thank you to Anne for these amazing tips and detailed insights on PRS for Music and the world of royalties. I'm completely blown away with the importance and dimension that PRS has on composers and performers, especially by the fact that 27 trillion music users were registered last year. That number just sounds completely surreal. It's great to see how PRS for Music is committed to talent development through PRS Foundation and its programmes, such as Power Up, Open Fund and Women Make Music. It's also very useful and relieving to discuss the funding cut and how PRS for Music continues to put huge efforts into the foundation regardless. As a performer myself, I'm aware of how rewarding it is to know that your music is being heard, and especially when these audiences come from countries and locations you never expected them to. And it's thanks to PRS that we can find this out and get paid appropriately for these uses. So listeners, you can find all the information regarding PRS and how to register at www.prsformusic.com. It's been a privilege to have you here, Daniel, and thank you so much for explaining to us how PRS plays a key role for composers and artists by guaranteeing they're being paid fairly for their work, while also supporting younger talent through the foundation. Thank you for listening. Thank you.